I'm Charlie Melcher, founder of The Future of Storytelling, and I'm delighted to have you with me for this episode of The Faust Podcast. Our guest today, Dr. Derek Hamm, is an award-winning VR director and head of the Media Arts Design and Technology Department at North Carolina State University's College of Design. I first encountered his work back in 2018 when he submitted his VR project, I Am a Man, for the Foss Prize. The piece, which is about the 1968 Memphis sanitation workers' strike and the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which took place there in Memphis, is one I will never forget. It let me embody the experience of a black sanitation worker allowing me to see and feel the emotions of that day from a whole new perspective. I'm not the only one who was profoundly moved by the piece. It was an official selection at VR and film festivals across the country, and we were honored to award it that year's Faust Prize. Since then, Derek has continued to use VR to shed light on stories from African-American history. His most recent piece, Barnstormers, Determined to Win, gives a glimpse into the experience of African-American baseball players in the 1940s by putting us in the cleats of one of the players themselves. And again, his empathetic storytelling has made an impact. Brainstormers has been covered by outlets such as NPR and USA Today and was selected to be shown at the prestigious Cannes Film Festival last year. It's a pleasure to reconnect with Derek today to talk about his work as a creator and educator. Please join me in welcoming Derek Hamm. Derek, welcome to the Future Storytelling Podcast. It's really a pleasure to have you here today. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. We first met when you had submitted your VR piece, I Am a Man, to the Future Storytelling Prize, and you won it. <laughs> and, uh, and we were super honored to have you come and receive that award. Tell me a little bit about your path. You know, what, what did you study, and, and how did you come to VR? I have two degrees in architecture and a PhD in something called design computation. Uh, when I started my doctoral work, it was two years in where I was doing research into spatial, what I call today spatialized media. How do we get content to come off the screen? Um, using projectors, using anything that I could to make content pop off into a third dimension. And as someone with a background in architecture, you're always thinking more spatial. And so I wasn't even looking for traditional VR, because even though I had known about it, it was just too expensive. I knew um, that price point wasn't what I was looking for. So I was looking at all these like cheaper um, hacks and, and, and other ways to accomplish this stuff. And that's when I saw this Kickstarter project called Oculus. And I knew right then and there, it's like, we got to get one of those. And I was working with a lab and they were like, yeah, get one, order one. Let's see what we can do with it. And when I got that headset and started, you know, immediately out of the box, opening into uh, Unity Game Engine and started working with it, it, it changed how I just thought about what the potential we could do to tell stories, to make spaces come to life, to transport us to places. So um, I still think of those early days as just being like magical in a way. 
I love that you started from a perspective of three-dimensional or, or spatial storytelling. It's one of the things that I also have been so fascinated by through the journey of Future of Storytelling, which was to watch the world of storytelling, the world of media and communications go from you know, flat, two-dimensional screens or pages uh, to this world of three-dimensional you know, where you could step into the story. I think that is literally one of the shifts taking place in the 21st century is going from the flatland of the printed page and the confines of a rectangle on a flat screen into three-dimensional worlds that, that we have agency in and can step in and be embodied in and all those things. So it's not surprising to me to, to learn that you started with degrees in architecture and, and thinking about three-dimensional world building, but it's just something you know very exciting to me to discover that we we share that fascination and of course then not surprising that you found yourself enamored with virtual reality which is a sort of about three-dimensional world building and and putting people inside something giving them that sense of presence in in that space now you you were pretty much self-taught though when it came to VR right you you got that headset yeah. and, and then what happened <laughs> you know i i think in a, in a lot of ways, it was good that I didn't have the baggage. I didn't have the baggage of game development. I didn't have the baggage of film to kind of give me these rules to say, this is how you're going to have to do it. So, you know, when I talked to other friends and colleagues who were coming from um, places like film, for instance, struggling with, um, well, how do I make cuts and how do I direct the individual to look here to look there? For me, you know, architecture, when you when you put a building into the world, you, you, you direct spatially you don't control every single way they look you you really are creating a set of rooms a set of spaces and so I was used to the vocabulary of uh, spatial driven experiences already and I didn't have this baggage that to say oh I you know I need to tell a story by cuts and edits and close angles and stuff I was like no I tell stories with spaces the largest hurdle for me when I started getting into it was on the animation side you know when it's one thing to tell stories of spaces but then you start wanting to deal with like human figures and avatars and people and it's like whoa okay back to school here let's <laughs> let's figure this out <laughs> did, you, did you see other work at that time were there things that were influences you know there was a piece um a pearl harbor vr experience that mm. i remember an early one that fascinated me with the idea of history, digging deep into history. And I remember seeing that piece and it was just like, again, these were early pieces that, um, that was done by Time Life. And I remember these early pieces, you know, they're making the rules. Like they're, they're, there's no conventions of what to do. Should, should something glow to tell you when to grab it? Or do you use a narrator? Do you use music? And so all of these things were so experimental. But I remember testing that piece out and saying, oh, my goodness, like, aha, this is only the beginning for us to start thinking about where we revisit historical moments to ask you to reflect deeply about what it's like to be there. I was fortuitous in that when I started working on it, Oculus had just started to release a new input device, and that was the touch controllers. And as soon as I heard that they were going to release these new controllers that gave you the simulation of hands, immediately began thinking about, oh my goodness, 
transporting people, transporting them into the ethnicity of someone else, transporting them into the gender of something else, that's going to be radically different. And for me, it was just like perfect timing that those controllers were coming out just when I was starting to work on I'm a Man. So describe I Am a Man, please, for, for our listeners. So I'm a Man is a, a virtual experience that takes you into the Memphis Sanitation Workers' Strike. And that's this moment in time where most people just remember, oh, Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis in 1968. But they don't often know the larger narrative that he was there for the poor people's campaign. He was there to to push against the inequality on wages um, for working class, and in this case, the sanitation workers. And so when I began thinking about this project and I put it together, I wanted to teleport you into a sanitation worker. And using the touch controllers, the first thing that happens when you look down, you have the hands that of a black man. And that is transformative for a lot of people. They're like, I am out of my skin. I'm in someone else's lived experience. And this project, only 14, 15 minutes long, will take you through these different stages of understanding some of the struggle that was there right into that very eerie moment. Being at the Lorraine Motel, you see Dr. King on the balcony, you know something's about to happen. And so really putting you in that place in time, dealing with the gravity of how heavy it was for them to be struggling, the loss of Dr. King, the fight for equality, and letting you kind of live that a little bit. Um, I, I will say it was as emotional for me building it in a lot mm. of ways um, as it has been for the people I've seen experience it. Mm. Well, I remember being incredibly moved by the piece. Um, obviously, showing, you know, trying to experience it from the perspective of a black man, which is not a perspective I, I have ever had. And for me, it was a beautifully told story because I felt that it really used the medium in a very unique way to create a stronger emotional response. So not only do you go through this, you know, first really associating with the strikers. You can hold a placard that says, I am a man. Um, I think I even remember being able to like empty some trash, be a sanitation worker first, then be a striker. But then at the end, when, when this peaceful demonstration has turned to you know, a nighttime riot because of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, and you feel traumatic and emotionally upsetting moment because you you interjected into the animated world real footage like documentary mm -hmm. footage that we could watch on TV screens through the through the store window and then the next thing that happens is this police car pulls up these police officers get out point guns at you and tell you to put your hands up and and you're at that moment where you're you're sharing that anger that you're filled with emotion and you're put in a sort of moral quandary. Do I raise my hands and obey? Or do I, you know, give them the finger? Like, you know, what am I going to do right now? What role am I, am I willing to play here? And, you know, I personally had never been arrested at gunpoint by police, you know? So when I raised my hands up, you know, begrudgingly, it created a whole set of emotions in my body that I wouldn't have had if I were just watching it they were emphasized by the fact that I was doing it. Right. And I just thought, this is brilliant. This is, this is using this medium to 
elicit a different kind of emotion than one that's meant to be you know, passively observed. This, is, this one's meant to be acted. You know, it's interesting. Um, you're not the first person to, to comment on that moment in the experience, but it's amazing what the emotional impact can do to even how you perceive the space. So, so many people have told me, it's like, yo, that moment when the police has the, the police have their guns pointed at me, they tell me to put their hands up. And I always just kind of sit and listen to that because the reality is you, there is no policeman and there is no gun. It's a bright light in a cop car and the voice but it's, it's almost like a form of editing. When you see in the old films and you hear a car crash and you see someone there and you're like, oh, that person was hit by a car. You're like, well, we never saw that footage. Your mind put that together. Um, I do this at the Lorraine Motel. Often people, they respond of like, yeah, I saw Dr. King get assassinated. It's like, well, actually you didn't. Um, it fades to black and you hear the gunshot. But that's the type of spatial and VR editing that happens where we can rely on the person experience it to fill in the gaps sometimes. And then we can just highlight those key moments very intently. And it's amazing what that mind will just fill in the gaps of like, I experienced it that way. Wow, I feel like I can see the police in the... <laughs> but there were no police. That's crazy. That is really crazy. It was audio. That was audio and a bright light from the car in your, in your mind will put the pieces together. Yeah. Wow. Tell us also about using VR to bring history to life. You've also done that in your newer piece, Barnstorming. You've, again, chosen an important part of sort of the African-American historical experience in, in America. Like, why are you choosing this medium to help us experience history? You know, for me, there, there's something special about revisiting history through spaces. I'm from Virginia. I'm about, I was raised in Hampton Roads, which is about 30 minutes out from Williamsburg, Virginia. And even as a child, my mother uh, is retired now, but she was a history teacher in elementary school. And so she was would famously grab my brothers and I and drag us to Williamsburg in summertime. And I remember learning about history through spaces. I remember going to D.C. and, and seeing things and um, seeing places and spaces. And so for me, every time that I think about those really meaningful, reflective moments in time where I've thought about something in history and I, like, I actually went there physically. It's not just about a photograph. It's about a spatial kind of, I'm sharing the, the world, the air, the space that these people inhabited once upon a time. And that's what I find so special about virtual reality. It better recreates that space for you to be reflective about the historical moment. And so I have been really drawn to finding historical moments that are partially known, but there are some facts about it that have been left out. And so for, for I'm a Man, for instance, we know so much about the highlight bullet points. Dr. King, assassinated in Memphis, but it's like, wait a second, <laughs> there's all these sanitation workers and they fought for equality. And a few months later, they got a, a major bill ratified for their city. And there's some components that that moment in time of Dr. King's assassination it was so big, it made the other key moments kind of disappear from the, from the brightness. So when I look at Negro League Baseball, for instance, you look Jackie Robinson, first player, integrates baseball, and you, you say, wait a second, let's tone that light down and look at more of the story, and then you see, wait a second, there's this guy named Larry Doby, who two months later in the same year 
also integrates into Major League Baseball. And then you start digging. You start seeing all this richer aspect of the history. And so for me, I love those moments where we can find those parts of the historical experience where it's like, I, th I thought I knew the story. It's like, no, you only knew the tip of the iceberg. How can we shed light on so much more that was happening at that time? As you describe it, I think about the tradition of good writing. And often it's the specificity. It's, it's bringing up some very small details that somehow uh, make people often sort of feel like they're there when you're reading a novel, for example. And, and I think about now um, the spaces that you create in your VR pieces, the ballpark, which is you know, extraordinary, or several ballparks, and, um, and really feeling something about the time and the place through being in that space. But I also think about how you use action and gesture as well. I mean, in Barnstorming, this more recent VR piece, you, you let us sort of catch a ball and then take it out of the mitt and throw it. And, and that's such a natural gesture. I mean, I grew up, I wasn't a serious baseball player, but I you know, certainly grew up playing catch as a kid and I did it with my son. It's still something we enjoy doing together. Like, it's such a familiar action. I just feel like you're, you're also building a language of physical actions that is helping us feel authentic in that place and time in that space in the same way a, a great novelist might come up with a, you know, a detail about clothing or, or somebody's you know, physical appearance or something. You know, what I was trying to do here is like bring you into the community. You know, that, those players, it's like a fraternity. And I'm like, hey, step on the field into fraternity. Play ball. Look at, hear them laughing in the background, just hanging out together. Even before that, a scene of being in the sandlot. I was trying to bring people into these intimate spaces where you've probably, again, only seen a photograph and to say, wait a second, these are, these are, this isn't a woe is me moment. This is, hey, we're going to make the most of this and have a blast and do it at the highest level. And so being able to put you into the, the, the smaller, everyday, mundane moments, like a practice or a sandlot, I think is just as important to really visualize what it was like to be in this time to see these players instead of just the big hero moments of the black and white of someone hitting that, that um, home run. And I give you that too, but I wanted to make sure <laughs> yeah. that those subtle moments are there, you know. But clearly you also have been using the medium of VR to help give people some insight into racism and prejudice in our country uh, and its deep tradition, sadly. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and what your, what your hope is there to use VR for that purpose. Yeah, you know, you look at a moment in time and what we often forget is whenever we, we review a history, we see a documentary, what could a photograph, you're looking at it from the lens of your own eyes. And so it's hard to sometimes pause and go beyond that. And I think that's that true empathy is like, oh, that was hard for those people. Imagine yourself being that person. And what I was trying to do here is position you, and especially with Barnstormers, and kind of shed just a little bit of light on that strangeness that America has always dealt with, with the love and appreciation for certain cultural aspects, and then the shunning away um, when you're, you move into the neighborhood. <laughs> right, right. 
Was there a little bit of that for you in terms of trying to imagine what it was like back then? Absolutely. You know, Barnstormers going, you know, if, if, if I'm a man takes you to 1968, by the time I get to Barnstormers, I'm going even further back. So I'm now, you know, we're talking 1947, 1946. And it's like, I'm, I'm going further back in time with these pieces. But with those, a, a lot of historical research. Um, I went to the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. The director there has been very supportive of this project, was very instrumental in giving me some key notes of things that this piece had to have. And then just so much time just like reading and pouring through and listening to interviews and really getting a full understanding of this era and time, but also these men at the time. And that's why I discovered and really started digging deep into this idea of the celebration of this aspect and really started questioning you know, if we talk about empathy as being this thing to feel someone else's emotions and to feel and to connect with them, why does it always have to be the pain and suffering? You know, the hero moments can be just as empathetic too. And so again, you go back into African-American history, people want to say empathy, empathy. Oh, I want to share the suffering. I'm like, no, can we share in the hero moments too? Can you be just as proud that these guys are doing this and hitting these home runs? And I knew for any African-Americans who tried these pe this piece on, they instantly start to feel hype and clap and they're getting all behind it. So I'm like, culturally, does that transfer over? If you're not black, are you putting the headset on and just super excited to hear about Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige and see how successful they were? That's what I was really teasing out, trying to say, let's look at the full spectrum. Let's understand people's pain. Let's understand their successes. Let's feel sad when they need them to be sad with them. And let's rejoice and be happy with them at those moments as well. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's a great point that empathy doesn't just have to be around suffering. <laughs> empathy can be around success and joy, too. As we said earlier, you, you are a self-taught VR creator, and now you're an educator and you teach others. You run a program to help with this type of storytelling. How important is your own creative process in informing your teaching? You know, one of the things I, I tell students is not to be limited and to and do work in silos. I tell them all the time, bring every aspect of yourself to your projects. You never know where your inspiration might be. You know, one of the things that I did, I've done in both the VR pieces, I've dealt with music in a very strong way. And sometimes people ask me, it's like, well, how are you making these music decisions? And I have to tell them, well, when I was an undergrad, I sang in a classical choir, I sang in a gospel choir, I have this music background. Um, I can go even back and say I played piano and trumpet when I was in high school, even further back. And so Oftentimes, you go down a road and you say, well, that's music. And we push that over there. I'm in architecture now. And you go into something like VR, and I was just pulling from all of my background and pulling from all of my understanding. And so I tell students from the very beginning, bring all of you. Do you skateboard? Do you surf? Um, do you play basketball? Do you sing? Do you do cosplay? You're playing Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> I don't care. All of those aspects can be brought to the table when it comes to a creative endeavor. And I start there and I let them know that they can bring them whole selves to the table when they do uh, a design project and especially something with VR. Mm. Such a good note, and I, I, it resonates for me personally. I was one of these wacky people who created his own uh, major in college 
Uh, they, they called it a special divisional major, and I, I put together literature and photography and film, a little philosophy, and, and we called that a major. <laughs> and, and at the time, I remember my dad saying, like, wait, what are you majoring in? <laughs> you know, And, of course, what are you going to do with that? And, uh, and then, you know, lo and behold, it's exactly, it's so relevant to what I ended up yes. doing with my life. And now it seems like it made perfect sense, but then it didn't fit in any neat box. So tell me a little bit about how you are thinking about designing this program that you run now. So, you know, the program at North Carolina State is called Media Arts Design and Technology. And you look at a name like that, and it already implies that's going to be a mixture of so many different things. And for me, at the core of it is about storytelling. It's like, all right, what type of stories do we want to tell? What kind of mediums? What kind of genres? But then where are those boundaries and how can we blur those boundaries? Is something animated? Is something a picture? Uh, is it a film? Is it an experience? Do I have agency to interact and change things? And so we're living in this beautiful age where I think we're going to see new genres of content pop up. And so the challenging thing often is when you have a young high school student, they want to come into college and they have this, from their perspective, I know what I want to do and it's that thing and they can point at it. And you try to pull them back to say, hey, you know, just because you know it's that thing, I want to pull and break everything apart. You know, that's a design process. Just break it all apart to its pieces of components and then rebuild it and to see what we find. And that's where you find the innovation in new types of products and things. Derek, what's exciting you? What are you seeing, what, either through students or other forms out there? Where are those inspirations for people who are inventing new forms that are turning you on? It's the new genre of media. I love everything. I, I love TikTok. I love the idea that someone's figured out, like, oh, we can watch things at short spans. I love augmented reality. I love the idea that in front of our eyes, there are new genres of entertainment. And it's not kind of like a big announcement someone like announces on the internet, this is the new genre. It just organically happens. So you look at something like people now sitting in their houses, the television on is on in the background, but they're being entertained with their phone in their hand. And it's like, whoa, could you have predicted that more eyes would be on TikTok videos and small Instagram feeds and things like that, as opposed to the television, which had been the holy grail of entertainment for so long? I'm so excited that we're starting to see the birth of new genres of storytelling and new genres of media. And so with AR and XR, they're, they're hungry. They're nipping at the bud. And the one thing we have to do is resist the temptation to simply classify it as something from the old. VR is just a gaming device or VR is just that. I really hope, and that's where I push the students to say, be bold. What's the new? What is the new genre? What's the new thing that people will walk away saying, I've never experienced something like that. I want more of that. And, was, and that's what excites me, this idea that we're, we're at the birthplace of so many new genres of, of storytelling and of entertainment. Are there other things that you encourage your students to do or to think about in the program, other ways to get them to you know, think originally? You know, I, I will say even with the kind of like, oh, the freak out 
uh, a moment of AI. You know, that was like the, the knee-jerk response that so many people had, even some of the students. The knee-jerk was like, oh, what's this about? Is it going to take away my creative um, job and this? You know, I've been telling students, it's like, you can't afford to put your head down. You have to keep your eyes open to every single thing. You have to see, hey, how can I appropriate, reappropriate this for my gain, for my good? And so right now, that's been my big encouragement is to keep pushing students to say, if this new thing is out, have no fear. Investigate it. See what that's all about. Don't make your mind up about it too soon. And so I think every single time something bold comes forth that's radical, that's disruptive, as we are now dealing with AI, I tell the students, I tell, like, jump in, test it, break it apart, push it to its limits, see where it's going to be, and be bold about it because we're, we're going to have it. Let's now use it in the way we want to use it. Is there something new that you're working on that you might mention or share? I think for me, um, it's more of the type of experience. Like I said I'm like I'm interested in this like genres of exploring, and I'm and I'm very interested in more shared experiences. I love VR. I'm proud of the work that I've done over the last several years, but so many of those experiences are, are still an individual in a headset. And there are lots of technical challenges to kind of make something like I'm a Man or Barnstormers with multiple people in the headset. So I've really been spending so much time investigating more communal things, technologies that allow people to sit around a table together, um, technology that allows people to sit around campfires together. Where does technology bring the huddle moments for a shared story? And so I've really been reflecting and looking deeper into what it means for people to commune in living rooms and spaces and tables and pubs and coffee shops. And then boom, now I I want to bring immersive technology, what does that look like? What does that mean? Does it come on the table? Is it lightweight? Is it screened? Is it shared? We desire the real human-to-human -human intimacy, being in the same space, sharing the same air, um, looking at each other in the eye, and then allowing those things to then allow us to laugh together or to cry together or to be together. And so I, as a genre, I've been exploring those kind of key moments and looking at several new technologies that might open the door for that. Well, Derek, it's been such a pleasure to get to hang out with you again and talk, and thank you for sharing, and thank you for the beautiful work you do both as a creator and an educator, and just can't wait to see what new comes from the spaces and, and creativity of your brain. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Charlie Melcher, and I want to thank you for listening to the FOSS podcast. Future of Storytelling is a passionate community of people who believe that better stories can create a better future. From our free monthly newsletter, Faust in Thought, to our annual Faust Explorers Club membership, we're constantly curating and celebrating the best of innovative storytelling. To learn more and get involved, visit our website at fost.org. FOSS Podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. I hope to see you again soon for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on.